Moncrief with Energlaze on News Talk. 087 106 is our WhatsApp number. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Jonathan DeBurka Butler joins us once again to bring us some stories from other parts of the world. Afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you going? Uh, South Africa, we're going to go to uh, first. And uh, this is a story about uh, kids being given muffins, which sounds very innocent and cute, but not so much. No, uh, this is the story that two men in uh, northwest Pretoria have been charged with attempted murder uh, after around 90 children fell ill from what is thought to be uh, drug-laced muffins. Now, these were vendors that were just at a little sort of shack outside of the school or at least not far away from this primary school in, in Pretoria. And I don't know how many muffins in total were sold, but in, in some way, shape or form, it seems that at least 90 children consumed some or, or all of these muffins and all of them had marijuana in it, or at least that's the suspicion of some okay. sort of marijuana in it. So uh, an investigation has been launched. Uh, these two suspects were aged 21 and 19. They were charged on Friday with attempted murder, which in South Africa could bring between five and 15 years in prison. So it's pretty serious stuff. And um, it's not the first time that something like this has happened. Uh, indeed, earlier this year, eight children were, admiss- were admitted to hospital having eaten so-called space cookies outside their schools. Now, I'm not sure if that was from a vendor or if somebody in their school had brought mm. them in and, and things like that, because again... Back in 2020, 20 girls uh, were given space cookies or space muffins by someone who was in their class and distributed them throughout the class. They fell in, fell ill, and, and it became a, it became an issue. So it's it's something of a of a problem, or at least something yeah. I suppose that parents are a bit panicky about yeah. in parts of South Africa. Uh, yeah, and whatever about those other instances, this like they bought these from a street vendor. Mm. So I'm assuming they didn't know what was in them, or can you just go up to street vendors in South Africa and, and say? Give me a hash cake. Well, do you know that old um, idea around uh, ice cream trucks? I don't want to libel any ice cream sellers yes. at all, but they, they have been known to be used to sell uh, other things. Now, maybe not in, in Ireland, but yes, in the United States and yeah. things like that. They have been known to sell other things. So what I imagine may well have happened here is that this was a place that was known for these types of muffins and perhaps the wrong muffins were given out to the wrong customer uh, and then uh, and then it, it went from yeah. there. So it's interesting, of wow. 90 of them affected, yeah. but it's interesting to note that they're being they're being brought on nine charges of attempted murder. So whether that means that nine muffins were sold and then they just split them up between themselves right, or something, okay. I'm not really sure uh, of the detail. But uh, yeah, a very serious story. Yeah, yeah, right. Venezuela, we're going to go to uh, next, and uh, I suppose an indication of just how uh, uh, perilous the situation is there in regard to prisons. They. Um, they they've just actually the, the authorities there have just take regained control of a prison. It sounds absurd. Absolutely, yeah. This is Tokoron Prison, um, which was being run by inmates for years uh, to such an extent that the government had to send eleven thousand security personnel. Apparently, now this is according to their statements, eleven thousand security personnel to take over control of this prison. Now, this prison had a swimming pool, a nightclub called uh, Nightclub Tokyo, a mini zoo, a playground, and it was basically run by a very powerful gang, right? So this was run by a gang called the Tren de Aruagua, a criminal gang who were sort of uh, very powerful right across South South America, right down Mm. as far as Chile, and something like 5,000 members in total. So even though their operation has been shut down in this particular prison, 
it's unlikely that the operation itself is going to be shut down. Now, the Venezuelans, uh, the Venezuelan authorities were at pains to point out that this operation was very, very successful. And indeed, President Maduro himself thanked the authorities and the people involved and said there will no longer be violent gangs from this day forth. We'll see the wiping out of violent gangs in, in Venezuela, which I think is a bit of a stretch. Mm particularly when you consider that we think that about 400 prisoners out of 1,500 have in fact escaped, including the leader of this particular gang, Hector Guerrero Flores. I'm surprised by even that figure, because if you're in charge of the prison, why don't you just let yourself out? Uh, (laughs) And why was that? Indeed. I mean, in what sense, why why was that? Were they having such a good time in the prison that they didn't want to leave? Well, that's basically it. I mean, they controlled it. And, and I suppose it's a bit weird. They're seen to be doing time. Yeah. They're in there. But of course, the people on the inside who are supposed to be really running the prison, as in the prison officers, were also in on the whole thing. Right. And I believe okay. it was, I think it was in quite an isolated place. So these things could happen. And, and everybody in the town and surrounding area knew about it. I'll put it to you this way, right? It was so well known how good life was in this prison that locals, when they were short of various different goods like bread and things like that, they knew where to go if they wanted to buy it. <laughs> they had their own supermarket Absolutely. as well. They, they did. They had their own supermarket, their own bank uh, where they could get loans. You could bet on horse races. There was a baseball pitch. I, I tweeted out a picture of the of the swimming pool and you can have a look at it. And uh, it's not a paddling pool. It's, it's okay. a proper size swimming pool. So this pool. was, you know, that old cliche about that's not a prison, that's a hotel. That was literally <laughs> that really the case was. here. Better. Uh, yeah. So, but there's so how many of them now at large? About six hundred. About, about four hundred, apparently. Right. Yeah. yeah, They caught two the other day, and they were delighted with yeah. that. Yeah, and presumably they arrested all the staff in this prison as well. They might be. Uh, well, it, information is sketchy, to be honest with you. So the government are trying to control the narrative here. Of, yes. of and other organisations are trying to get in and uh, see what information they can get. Like the four hundred prisoners that escaped, that came from a a media organisation rather than the government themselves. The government have said, we are launching a second follow-up operation. That's all they've said. Yeah. Um, so they're they're uh, not divulging too much information. I suppose extremely embarrassing for them. Very uh, much really. So. Uh, right, Germany. We're going to go to next, where they've banned a neo-Nazi group or another one. Another one, exactly. Yeah. yeah this is in fact the twentieth neo-Nazi group that they've banned. I assume since the end of the Second World War. I don't know when they started counting banning these groups, but anyway, that's what the um, Interior Ministry are saying. Twenty of them now gone. These are called the Hammerskins Deutschland. They had a membership of about 130, which seems quite small, but mm. I think they had a, a, a core membership, let's say, of 130, because to get into it, I think you had to go through various different hoops, probably quite literally. Yeah. Um, and so uh, they have been, um, it came on the back of, of a raid, right? So 28 leading members, their residences were raided last Tuesday, I think it was. Lots of them were arrested, lots of photographs spl- splashed all over uh, German media, that this had happened. So the the Interior Ministry, very happy about this particular organisation being closed down. They started in Texas in in 1988, Mm. apparently, and it's kind of a pan-national group, um, which is a kind of a top-down organisation. So there's a few of them around the place. I believe there's some in New Zealand and various other countries as well around the world. Uh, But these guys in Germany were uh, very strong and made quite a bit of money through the promotion of music and concerts and various different gatherings where, you know, extremists, other neo-Nazis could come and, you know, pay homage to whatever yeah. they pay homage to. Uh, well, yeah, and, and obviously there's very specific laws in Germany uh, about uh, uh, this kind of thing. Was there any evidence that they 
posed any threat to anyone. This was something that was interesting. I couldn't find necessarily any anything that I found. They the the media were always there, the reports were always talking about other groups that had associations with them yeah. that had done stuff in the past. But I, I I can't I can the only thing I can say is that some of these people were were gun holders. Okay. But apparently they had licenses to hold guns. Okay. So I I'm not a hundred percent sure what evidence they're going to you know, be able to charge with, uh, them with. But obviously to move in on such an organised group with such an influence, the authorities, I don't think they would have done that without being able to build a case. Yeah. Um, so I think they will mm, be, be able yeah. to prosecute some of these well, these I, members for I, certain I, things. I'd imagine as well, though, that, that people might be members of multiple groups or migrate from one to the other anyway. Absolutely. So they're, 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 Apparently it's something like almost, they estimate almost 40,000 people in Germany are involved in what they're calling far-right uh, wow. groups or the, the extremist scene they're called. Yeah. yeah. Right, Spain we're going to go to uh, next and uh, a fairly shocking uh, story uh, to do with artificial in- intelligence and uh, uh, the image of a naked child. Several naked children I'm afraid, Sean. This was um, a town in southern Spain uh, called Almendra Lejo, uh, which is a very small place. It only has a population of about 30,000 people up until now. It was known for olive oil and wine. Um, and this has kind of brought it into the um, national media, a place that it probably didn't want to be, and certainly not for something like this. 28 girls aged between 11 and 17, all right, have been the victims of having naked pictures of them circulated via social media, only it's not really them. Mm. So what seems to have happened is that pictures were taken off their social media streams, whatever, Instagram or whatever they use, and they were put into an AI app, which basically takes the head off the picture and then and generates a body. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And these were then circulated uh, around the town for a few months without their knowledge. Now, it seems that one of the girls might have been the victim of, of extortion or an attempt to extort her. And that's probably how the, um, the news eventually came out. Um, but it's caused a major stir, as you can imagine. And nobody really knows what to do, right? Because the perpetrators of the crime, and let's call it a crime, are 11 boys. At, at this point, there's 11 boys who've been brought in for questioning, but they're aged between 12 and 14. And the age of criminal responsibility in Spain doesn't start until 14. So we don't really know what's going to happen here. Or what they can do is, and, and presumably, so yeah, somebody made these pictures and then they were just circulated on WhatsApp groups and, and, and that kind and of Telegram thing. And Telegram and various other groups like that. Yeah. yeah. Ah, that's astounding, yeah. Um, I, I'm very concerning for the locality, I, I, yeah. I imagine. Very and, much and, so. and I think it's really important that the fact that this small town, this town, as I said, only has a population of 30,000. So there was there was one mother who was asked um, about her 14-year-old daughter and she says, my daughter's handling it pretty much okay. She's doing all right. But there are others who aren't leaving the house. And yeah, you can imagine yeah. in such a small town that this is going to affect these girls for a very long time if they end up staying here. When I can't help but suspect, like if, a, you know, if it turns out it was just a kid who generated these images, uh, one suspects that this town is just a microcosm of what's happening uh, all over the world, Absolutely. indeed. Uh, right, uh, finally, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh now. You may have seen some um, reporting about this uh, during the week uh, in, in other media, but maybe, Jonathan, you could explain... What's been going on there, I suppose, since the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, essentially? Yeah, I'll go back to the 1920s, if you okay. like. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, very briefly, the, the Russians, when they took over these areas, 
Um, they had Armenia and Azerbaijan and there was a group of Armenians living in this territory. But the area was then, the administration of this area was then given to Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Armenians living in this territory were never particularly happy about it. So when the USSR broke up in 1989, those that group of people led a rebellion basically to try and, you know, join Armenia effectively. They mm-hmm. actually voted in a sort of a type of referendum there to join Armenia, but this was rejected by the international community. So it's always been recognised as officially belonging to Azerbaijan. Hmm. There was a war between 1989 and 90, 94. It kind of came to a stalemate. But what effectively happened is that the Armenian uh, local government there took power and they've controlled the area ever since. Now, back in 2020, when the rest of us were suffering uh, and paying attention to the pandemic, the Azeris went into this area and over the course of six weeks, they took control of, a, of small pockets of, of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And now they followed up. Um, last week, they came in and in a 24-hour, um, um, what would you call it? I can't what remember. You almost blitzkrieg. You blitzkrieg, say, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, they took over the rest of the land that they, that was effectively and polit- wasn't effectively, but was politically recognised as being theirs. Yeah. And so now what you're left with is the Armenians have basically downed their guns. They're not going to fight for this territory anymore. And you're left with 120,000 Armenians in this area who all of a sudden are being ruled from a country that they really don't want to be ruled from yeah. for various different reasons. And are most of those going to leave now? That's what they're saying. That's what the former local government, which was supported by the main Armenian government, are saying that 120,000 people are going to leave. I just checked it before I came in and the latest figures that I saw were 13,500 people have already crossed into Armenia. So okay. like that's what... It was last week that this happened. Mm. Uh, and so you, you've already yeah. got 10% of that population moving and, across. And very briefly, why is the international community always recognising Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan? I, I th- and, yeah. and, and, and why is it worth anything to Azerbaijan? Uh, well, they've always seen it because it was administered during the, the time of the USSR. They've always seen it as being part of their mm. territory. Uh, and I suppose when all of that flipped over uh, after the collapse of communism, now I'm open to correction on this. What I think basically what happened is we'll, we'll leave the borders and administra- administrative zones as is. Yeah. Uh, as I said, I'm open to correction on that. So that's what happened. Now, it should be said that when the first war was fought between 1989 and 1994, there was a decent Azeri population there. Most of them fled into Azerbaijan during that conflict, so there would be, you know, a, a, okay. A, they a have also a, a kind of a, a claim yeah, to it as well. They, yeah. they would have thought that themselves. Jonathan, thanks a million for thanks, coming into us as ever. Jonathan de Burka Butler there. Moncrief weekdays at two p.m. with Anna Glaze on News Talk.